Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. All right, Ben. So today's episode is called Run Your Company Like an Aircraft Carrier. Uh, What are we going to talk about today? So today we're going to talk about this whole idea of high reliability organizations. We're going to talk about what they are uh, and how normal organizations can learn from them. What are some things that all the other organizations out there can learn from organizations like naval aircraft carriers? And then some additional lessons from uh, organizations like specifically the aircraft carrier that can be helpful, I think, for how we think about teams and organizations overall. It's going to be a fun episode. Right. And if you're like me earlier in my career, I had only heard about high reliability organizations through healthcare. And mm. generally, these are organizations that have uh, high consequence or maybe even death attached to what's going on. But actually, as you learn today, high reliability organization is kind of how everybody should be operating under the hood. That's right. At least that's the idea theoretically. And and I think there's a lot that every organization can learn from these types of organizations. So maybe we can just start with this whole idea of what is a high reliability organization. And what you mentioned is that it's certainly true that many people in healthcare, because of the high stakes involved with caring for people's health, uh, many people in healthcare try to aspire to become a high reliability organization. And you know, the, the scholars who study this stuff um, oftentimes cite organizations like naval aircraft carriers, uh, nuclear power plants, um, and some other kind of interesting types of organizations as these prototypical examples of a high reliability organizations. And the idea here is that, you know, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more kind of what an aircraft carrier does and so forth. But I mean, there is a lot going on in that organization in terms of the risky technologies that people are interacting with on a constant basis. And uh, the, the thing is, is that people are able to engage daily with these risky technologies, and they have far fewer than what we would think of as kind of their fair share of accidents. Um, you know, given all the risky stuff that's going on, you'd think that people would be uh, getting hurt and killed and equipment would get, be getting damaged a lot more frequently than it actually does. Um, they actually operate in a remarkably safe manner. Um, and this idea around high reliability is that the reasons um, have to do, uh, you know, there's some kind of an engineering aspect to it. Um, but high reliability organizing is more about uh, the ways in which people interact, the ways in which people communicate, and the way in which they adhere to some common principles uh, as they go about their daily work. Right. So... Another kind of hallmark of these organizations is this idea that they don't expect to be 100% successful. Right. Right. So so that may me if it's a super, super risky place that they expect, well, we expect two people to die a year executing <laughs> this task. Um, so there's a, there's a focus there. Um, and most of this is, I'm always surprised at how this stuff is similar to some of the agile principles, mm. such as people and interactions over process. You know, it it's not that there's a hard, fast rule, but it's a it's a mindset 
I mean, if you look at the words, they're they're not will always. So like the first mm-hmm. one. So let's go through these five hallmarks of high reliability. Yeah. And I should mention, you know, kind of where this uh, comes from. So the, the hallmarks of high reliability, there's there's five of them. And um, these, these come primarily from some seminal work that was done a number of decades ago, actually, by some really great researchers. In particular, there's a uh, a professor named uh, Carl Weick. Uh He was uh, so he's, awesome. Yeah he, yeah, he writes some amazing things. From he's an organizational theorist, um, a scholar of organizational behavior, and so forth. That and and he also dabbles in you know uh, organizational communication and social psychology. And and he, um, so he's retired now from the University of Michigan, but. Uh, you know, he and along with some colleagues like um, Carlin Roberts and Todd Laporte and Kathleen Sutcliffe, um, other amazing researchers and scholars in this area, um, you know, they they came up with these this, these kind of hallmarks of these these organizations. You know, they looked at these teams and these organizations and said, how do they deal with so much risk and ambiguity and uncertainty in their daily work and yet have fewer than their fair share of accidents? What are some things that they're doing? And they boiled it down to some of these um, hallmarks of high reliability, as we call them. And we'll post a, a link to um, kind of the uh, I mean, maybe there's more, but there's there's one, at least in my mind, kind of seminal, uh, digestible for the general public type of book uh, out there on this, and it's called Managing the Unexpected. Right. And uh, it's a great book. I recommend you. It's very readable. Uh, it's not not one of these kind of you know, pie in the sky, ivory tower things. This is written by Carl Weick and Kathleen Sutcliffe. But uh, in there, they describe a lot of this and they describe these hallmarks of high reliability. So um, I'll just mention all of them, uh, you know, all five of them, and then we can kind of dissect them a little bit. Sound good? Yeah, great. Uh, Okay, great. All right. So first one is a preoccupation with failure. Number two is a sensitivity to operations. Number three is a reluctance to simplify explanations. Number four, a commitment to resilience. And number five is deference of decision-making authority to those with the most expertise. Uh, And we'll unpack this a little bit and uh, try to dissect some lessons from them. So uh, let's start off with that first one, a preoccupation with failure. Right. So one of the things that I notice and, you know, one of the quotes that I talk about and a lot of companies is, you know, hey, we're, are we asleep at the wheel? Right. Right. And so in the high reliability of organizations, everybody's sensors are up, you know, they're pay attention. Mm-hmm. And and this idea of failure. So a lot of people think about the end results. We failed to meet quarter end sales goals or we failed at, you know, a forest fire got out of control. Right. But on the preoccupation of failure stuff, we're actually talking about monitoring as things go along. That's little right. little items stack up. And so if you're going about, you know, let's say you're watching somebody walk on a sidewalk, you know, you're just saying, are they kind of within the lane? Mm-hmm. You know, but we're not saying, hey, that guy's kind of drifting, drifting to the right, because it's <laughs> so normal to see somebody walking on the sidewalk. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, this idea that we're being preoccupied with failure, it it kind of runs contrary to many of our conventional notions of leadership, for example. A lot of times, at least popular thinking is that leadership is about rah, rah, inspirational things all the time, which um, maybe that's a a little part of it, but it's not all of it, of course. And 
you need to be expressly aware as a team, as an organization, what you don't want to happen, right? What are the things that could, um, you know, that, that it could be some sort of outcome of a project. It could be, you know, in the case of a, a surgical team, you know, patient uh, accidents and, you know, patient errors and so forth. Um, but what are the things that you don't want to happen so that you can really start to be attuned to those, what we call the weak signals of danger, right? Because right. A, lot, a lot of times, you know, this is about sensing. I, and I love how you, you kind of um, picked up on that. You know, this is, um, it, it's about monitoring your environment, about anticipating what could, could happen. And there's actually a, a kind of interesting creativity that has to happen, right? I mean, it's, it's about being able to imagine what-if scenarios. And a lot of this happens, uh, as we'll talk about a little bit, um, probably later in the episode is, you know, this, this happens through human interaction. It's not something you do kind of individually. So this preoccupation with failure is a very important part of that. It's about not being complacent, uh, with, uh, with the status quo, you know, um, either right. with, yeah. Yeah. Some of the, you know, some of the stuff, think of this and some of the literature kind of speaks to this, you know, something that's really popular right now is this idea of mindfulness and mm -hmm. mindfulness practice. This is kind of, mindfulness for the organization. Uh, yeah, I think that that's maybe one way to think about it. Um, you know, way, the way that maybe some of these scholars like Carl Weick would, would describe it, they would describe it in terms of what they call heedful interrelating, right? So being uh, situationally aware as you are interacting with each other and picking up on these weak signals of, of, uh, of, of danger. Um, you know, so it's very important to to note that a an organization that is operating in this way, a high reliability organization, is not one that is error free. It's one that instead catches small errors before they become big ones. Right, right. And you know, especially in larger organizations, and we can see this in the military. You know, they kind of did a little bit of this with this program called "Every Soldier Is a Sensor," right? Mm. E ESS. So. You know, you're you're navigating the environment in Afghanistan or something. My deployment wasn't as glamorous as this, but um, hmm. you know, you're out and about. You're making movement outside. Um, we did do a bunch of driving of people all over that country, but um, you know, one soldier notices one thing. Hey, we see these guys bringing parts into this spot. Well, mm -hmm. that that's such a small thing. Um, so failure would be that for us might be considered like not noticing and something really negative happening. Yeah. And then another guy over in another part that goes, he notices something else right now. If they don't have a way to feed that data to some central place, I mean, these are small things. So, you know, it'd be like, oh, the small error. I saw something very different today on the way to um, Kabul Airport. Hmm. Mm hmm. Right. If there's not that preoccupation, if we don't see all of these little things, if we're not monitoring everything that's going on, then those small failures build up and like all of a sudden somebody's got a bomb or something really bad. Yeah. And, then you know, this kind of reminds me of another kind of classic uh, model um, or, or kind of a metaphor, a way to think about how how accidents and how errors happen in organizations. And this is comes from a, another researcher named James Reason. And he has what what's called the Swiss cheese model, and so you, you <laughs> nice, yeah. So you imagine, you know, Swiss cheese, which uh, of which I'm not particularly fond. Um, it uh, uh, has a bunch of holes in it, right? And they're in kind of mm -hmm. different places. 
And the idea here is that, you know, these holes are, you know, the possibility of failure or error within an organization. And any one of them might not uh, necessarily cause something bad to happen. But when you, because in an organization, you have a bunch of different slices of the Swiss cheese. However, right. when they, you know, by, by virtue of chance or um, maybe because leaders and other people ignored something, they start to line up and you then suddenly have a bunch of holes that line up. Then these small errors all can lead up to and create a catastrophe. Um, and so, you know, it's this idea that uh, these small things do matter and noticing things at a small level really is important. Um, you know, so, hey, that, that pile of trash on the side of the road uh, on the way to Kabul Airport, that that seems to be different than it was yesterday or, you know, those types of things. Um, so uh, it, it's very it, it, a lot of this is about noticing and um, being creative and thinking about what's going on in your environment. Right. And for marketing professionals, this is all of a sudden our competitor slapped us upside the head. Yeah. Right. And and now you've lost a bunch of market share. You know, you're you're staring down at your foot while your boss is screaming at you, right? <laughs> if you're yeah. in one of those organizations. And then you start to piece it back together. And so a lot of this stuff for the high reliability organizations was like, uh, things came off the rails really badly. Um, what happened? And you don't want to be that company organization that's looking like, oh, we had no idea what was going down with our competitor. Yeah. You know, because most competitors don't have the super secret sauce like maybe some of those bigger Silicon Valley guys. I mean, we don't necessarily know what's in the new iPhone mm -hmm. that much before it comes out. Got it. But this other stuff. Uh, yeah. So preoccupation with failure for you as a company may be how do, how do we fail to maintain or increase our place in the marketplace? Right. Right. Yeah. And we'll talk about this a little bit, um, you know, in, in the next section when we talk about kind of what normal organizations, so to speak, can can learn from these. Um, but I think it, it's also important to note that this preoccupation with failure, you know, it, it might not just be your marketing department, but it could be, you know, what are what are some of the people who are running the cash registers at your your fast food restaurant? Are they starting to notice about different things that customers are doing or saying? Right? I mean, these it's these very weak signals that could be happening. I mean, in other parts of the organization, you know, there, there's no premium on this type of knowledge just within marketing and so forth. So um, sensing from everywhere, you know, every every soldier is a sensor, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Um, and I've actually got a quote here from this guy named Rockland that's in the week. Uh, paper that um, HROs or high reliability organizations, quote, seek an ideal of perfection, but never expect to achieve it. Mm. They demand complete safety, but never expect it. They dread surprise, but always anticipate it. They deliver reliability, but never take it for granted. Oh, this is so great. I, I just like, yeah, I just swooned. That's amazing. They, <laughs> let's keep going. They live by the book, but are unwilling to die by it. If mm. these beliefs seem wonderfully contradictory, those who express them are under no particular pressure to rationalize their paradoxes. Indeed, they seem actively to resist such rationalization. So this is kind of where it's kind of like the Agile principles, like really? this yeah. over this. Um, and this is really about a mindset for your organization. Um, but yeah, let's, let's go to the second one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, fantastic. So the next one is what's called a sensitivity to operations. And this is not just thinking about operations as, 
you know, your business function of operations. But this is really about being in tune with uh, those people, those sensors in your organization who are close to the front line. Uh, you know, and, and, and since you just did a quote, I'll do a quote from Managing the Unexpected right here. You know, it says that uh, HROs are sensitive to operations. They are attentive to the front line where the real work gets done. The big picture in HROs is less strategic and more situational than is true of most other organizations. When people have well-developed situational awareness, they can make the continuous adjustments that prevent errors from accumulating and enlarging. And, you know, so that's this idea that we're not just being kind of robots going through our day-to-day business. Uh, and that's, that's hard um, because we, we, we like routines. We like predictability. Uh, we don't, you know, we are kind of built uh, to some degree to, you know, want to, to do things in, in the same way, just out of ease. Um, and being sensitive to, you know, those weak signals of, of danger is really what this is about. You know, so, you know, for example, you know, having when I was uh, on active duty in the Navy, you know, I, I helped run the uh, the engineering department um, on a on a Navy destroyer, and uh, you know, this the sensitivity to operations there would be, hey, like this this uh, you know maybe junior level person who's an expert on the gas turbine um, engines, you know, seems to notice that something is seems seems off, like it's not sounding right, or or perhaps they've they've noticed that you know something just doesn't seem to be operating the way that it should be, and they they raise that flag, and that there's a, a way for them to to talk about it and for that to be dealt with um, before it becomes something bigger. Right, you know, uh, generally in sensitivity to operations in large organizations, they've got some kind of dashboard or something. They talk about leading indicators, right. you know, key performance indicators, lagging, you know, that kind of stuff. That's actually not a sensitivity. I mean, that's good that you, I mean, you should mm-hmm. have those things, but you have to ask if that's all the sensing you could have. And and listen to these words here, preoccupation, sensitivity. I'll just go down the line. Reluctance, commitment, deference. I mean, these are not solid like op, you know operations conducted according to the training manual or right. you know right these are these are the touchy feely elements here they are and and the thing is is that um what you know in in some of the most non touchy feely industries we've found that these are critical for success you know right. um in in things like running a naval aircraft carrier where you've got jets with bombs attached to them taking off you know <laughs> you know every couple minutes you got a, another one coming or going and there's people actually on the deck while this is happening i mean it is it's it's insane and, and maybe we'll post a couple there's um so the uss uh abraham lincoln and i'm sure some of the other big aircraft carriers you know in, in the united states navy do this as well but they have a cool facebook page with uh with some great video you know that they've done um, and maybe we'll, we'll put some of that in the show notes so people can actually get in a sense for this and kind of what it looks like. Um, yeah, so sensitivity to operations, being in tune with what's going on at the front lines. Um, maybe we'll move on now to this idea of reluctance to simplify explanations. Um, and again, this this goes <laughs> this goes contrary to you know what many of us, at least I, I'll just speak personally. You know, I used to think that that leadership was about being decisive and you know simplifying things. And and to some degree, it still is. And yet, this is the paradoxical paradoxical nature of this. You have to be 
kind of questioning your own judgment. Carl Weick actually oftentimes says, you know, that you should argue as if you are right and listen as if you are wrong. And I think that's this kind of idea of being reluctant to simplify explanations to kind of easy, uh, you know, answers. Yeah. And just to get some empathy on this, I think all of us um, or most of us have been in a situation where something goes off the rails or there's a problem that's ongoing we need to fix. And the boss is like, hey, you know, what's going on? And you, you try to describe describe it and they give you the kind of reddit ah, explain it to me like i'm five mm-hmm. and and you have to go it's just not that simple it's not a one plus one equals two here right right you know there's this that contributes to this to contribute you know and then the best managers will be like all right you know sarah bob you know let's let's take a look and then they can see that broader picture because you know when we talk about preoccupation with failure it's, oh, well, that little thing, that's not so bad. Things aren't going so bad. Uh, oh, the, I just see this little thing. And you're not reporting it up so they can get a picture of like, ooh, five of these littles become a big, right? Um, on the reluctance to simplify uh, explanations, if you've been in that situation where you just, you're trying to explain it to your boss what's wrong and they just want it simple, you, you know that, hey, you're in that red zone of reluctance to simplify explanations. Yeah. And so I think it's, you know, sometimes when you're offered, uh, when someone suggests something as being, oh, well, this is like this thing, you know, being reluctant, reluctant to simplify, it says, wait, hold on a second. Is it really, right? Can we, can we truly make that judgment? And here's an example from another one from Managing the Unexpected, um, talking about the Columbia um, space shuttle disaster, which, sure. uh, so it talks about this. It says, you know, for example, the burst of debris at the root of the left wing of the Columbia Space Shuttle, which was observed 82 seconds into the launch on January 16, 2003, was interpreted as an event that was almost, quote, in family. By this, NASA top management meant that the event was largely analyzed, reportable, and understood, right? They were wrong. So, so this is the idea that, hey, this thing happened, and we understand it. They were wrong, and and this because then um, if I remember the, the the scenario correctly, right, um, it was upon re-entry into the atmosphere that the Columbia Space Shuttle, um, uh, you know, exploded. So and it's because of some of these things that happened during the launch, um, and so you know, being careful that you know you are always kind of questioning: is this really what's going on, um, right. or am I being too quick to put it in this category of what we think we know and what we think we understand? Excellent. So the the next one is commitment to resilience. Mm. And I love this one, Ben. Talk, talk to us about commitment to resilience. Yeah, so this is the idea that, you know, we talked about how high reliability organizations are not ones that are error, error free. Um, they are ones that, uh, you know, are able to regain um, a somewhat stable state after things go wrong. And being uh, committed to that throughout and realizing that your system is not perfect and uh, that things will go wrong, as, as you already mentioned a little bit. Right. Um, right. And, you know, but it's this commitment towards, you know, realizing we're going to have things that go wrong, but we are not going to let those errors disa- disable what we what we're doing. So resilience is kind of this this marriage of keeping any errors that happen small um, and also 
improv, improv like improvisational workarounds, trying to figure out ways to, uh, you know, try new things if something bad happens and you need to find a new way to get something done. So for example, you know, maybe a, a certain piece of equipment um, breaks. Uh, now, are you going to let that disable like the mission or are you, you know, do you have the latitude and the ability and the creativity to try to figure out how to get around that? Um, and, you know, part of this is, <laughs> you know, how you, how you even talk with and empower people within the organization to take action when something bad happens. All right. And, and on the corporate side, you know, this is maybe paying attention to certain market trends for business cycle issues. You know, mm -hmm. we'll all see this stuff of, oh, all right, we, we got to just borrow up to the hilt because we have customers coming out our ears, right? And we expand, 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 massive amount of debt. All of a sudden, the business cycle happens, and they're caught out. They're not resilient as far as the fiscal stability of their organization. And yeah. so, you know, just like a ship at sea that maybe needs to keep an extra rudder around should theirs break <laughs> off or fail, right? There's items that you can do in a corporation or organization that help you be resilient. If you only have, if you have a key piece of knowledge, right? Um, I saw this in an, uh, a large organization had brought on a bunch of external contractors to manage certain functions. Well, they lost the capability of knowing how to do certain IT functions. And as soon as the vendor realized, oh, they don't have anybody, they started going up on the prices, going up on the prices. They're like, wait, this is crazy. Oh, hmm. shoot. Or, you know, Bob's the only person that knows how to do something. Well, what happens if Bob quits? Right. Well, not yet. you, you got to have these. So a commitment to resilience is making sure you've got uh, ways to back yourself up. Um, yeah. Be that fiscally, staff, uh, you know, whatever. Because most of our operations, right, is just cruising, you know, and it's so easy. You know, think about yourself as an employee. You're I've got this job. This I go punch in. I set up my desk. I do my PowerPoint. I answer calls. Right? <laughs> you know, it just becomes this giant. You know, you're thinking more of like, oh, my kid's got uh, baseball practice today and gymnastics. <laughs> How am I going to make that one work? Um, you know that it's hard for us as humans because we like to get to that cruise function. But a commitment mm -hmm. to resilience is making sure you have those backups, whatever they need to be. Yeah. And so, you know, kind of a key leadership function in a high reliability organization is to break, you know, puncture that uh, complacency that can happen and to, you know, uh, have there be, you know, be it through training, be it through, um, you know, trying to help people think differently by just facilitating the conversations uh, better with, you know, within and among uh, different groups uh, is, is very important. So excellent. Um the the last hallmark of high reliability organizations is this idea of what we call deference to expertise or deferring decision making authority to those people who have the most knowledge about it and this this seems to make a lot of intuitive sense but it doesn't always happen does it no <laughs> and you know i think of old tom nichols who talks about expertise you know we live in an era where people are skeptical about expertise and um, I think we need to understand what expertise is. And that is that it. And I like how the first one is preoccupation with failure. And then the last one is deference, um, 
to those with expertise. So people with expertise and, you know, if you're a layperson out there and you've got 30 years experience on a certain manufacturing process or something, if some moron comes in from the glass office up on the hill where corporate is and it's going to come down and tell you what's what, you're kind of offended, right? Because mm -hmm. you you have some expertise. However, what we're really trying to do with this whole high reliability organization is make sure we're firing all cylinders. So if you're an expert, generally you can go and just make a decision, make a decision, make a decision. But the uh, expertise decision-making literature, um, especially doing with uh, medical doctors that diagnose, with uh, chess players that make um, chess moves, um, the assumption can be that that expert's always going to be right. But you actually have to have both because if you're an expert, you tend to see patterns mm -hmm. more acutely than others. You've been doing it for years. You're like, oh, oh yeah, it's probably that. But, you know, for people who are skeptical of experts, but they miss it all the time, they they do. But if you, if you lined up the non-expert and the expert, the expert's going to hit it out of the park you know, 90% more times than the lay person, right? Yeah. But we're talking high reliability here, which means we don't want any failure, zero. Mm -hmm. So so you have to temper that expertise with the sensing of the lay person as well. So that right. expert might not get derailed and in, in getting locked into some of their pattern thinking. Yeah, no, I think that that's well said. And you know, I, I sometimes think about, um, you know, deferring decision making to people with expertise, like in a healthcare setting, um, you know, so for example, you know, so my older brother is an anesthesiologist and, um, and if I were, if I were for some weird reason, you know, in charge of him, if I were his supervisor, which would never right. happen, but if I were, let's imagine I was a healthcare administrator in, in a hospital where he worked, um, for some reason, uh, it would be silly for me to dictate um, ways in which, and, and, and also it would just be malpractice for me to dictate you know, specific ways in which I, he needs to do his job. Um, but this happens actually in healthcare quite a bit um, where, you know, people, doctors and people with, you know, high levels of expertise um, get these processes and requirements that are forced upon them that, right. that inhibit them from doing their job and doing it doing it well. And that's where, you know, involving people who have that subject matter matter expertise in the conversation about how to design your organization and how to um, best perform as an organization really makes a difference. Don't just impose things upon these, uh, you know, people who, who know more about certain areas uh, than you do. Yeah. And to, to the piece of firing on all cylinders, it, the, the lay person, the non-expert has a voice. Um, sometimes the expert, you know, people notice small things that are like, wait, this isn't quite right. Oh no, no. But the experts here, um, I trust the expert would notice these things and you can fall asleep. You're thinking, oh, mm -hmm. I got the best experts and this is going to go. For instance, washing your hands here. You know, we know from Ixoc Semmelweis that wash your daggone hands. Are you going to get people sick <laughs> yet? You know, doctors have to be continually reminded, even though they're experts, to wash their hands. So that's yeah. that's where it's really everybody's a team. But if it comes down, you know, you've raised this thing. Hey, I saw this little thing. The expert now knows you're probably going to defer to that expert. It's yeah. everybody together. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, one way that this plays out on a naval aircraft carrier 
is that anybody um, like on the, the flight deck, uh, you know, if they notice something that's going going wrong, they not only have the ability, but also the obligation to immediately raise a red flag and say, hey, we need to, you know, wave off that aircraft that's coming in um, because, hey, something's uh, fouled up on the on the deck and could cause a problem. Um, and they have that ability to um, to interject right away. And uh, and they have a lot of power that at that instance, even if they are not, and oftentimes they are not, uh, you know, a high-ranking individual in that organizational hierarchy. So um, you know, one thing. So those are the 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 hallmarks of high reliability. I think it'd be, uh, I think it's good for us to mention that if an organization is trying to do this, uh, it absolutely requires support and commitment from top leadership. Right. All right. You you can't say, and now I read this book and now we're a high reliability organization. Right. Or, or guys here, go read this book and, and make this stuff happen. That it, it doesn't work that way. You, if you're at the top of the organization, you have to learn about it. You have to support these activities and you have to make a commitment because it, it's, it's a mindset, just like the agile stuff. This is a mindset, not a check the box. Right. And, you know, a lot of organizations, I think, pay lip service to this idea. They say, oh, that sounds great. Um, but they aren't willing to devote the, the attention that's necessary uh, to develop kind of these, these really important cultural norms about how we're going to interact. Um, and even, you know, ideas about where does truth come from in our organization? Does truth only come, you know, where does truth only come from above or can anyone, um, provide important information, you know, and if just, you know, spoiler alert, if you are in the camp that truth only comes from above, uh, probably not a high reliability organization. Right, right. And so even though a lot of this, you know, the literature on this comes from healthcare or, you know, firefighters, uh, risky Mm -hmm. places, right? This is really any team or organization that deals with ambiguity and uncertainty, which is like everybody (laughs) at this point, right? You know, (laughs) I think so. Companies aren't surviving as long as you would hope they were. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And and I think this is I, I really like that you made the connection between uh you know these sense making types of activities and what oftentimes gets talked about in in terms of you know being um an agile organization or some of the principles of of um of agile, for example, from uh software development and so forth, because uh, it is about dealing with the unexpected. It's about dealing with change. It's about dealing with um, errors and things that go wrong. Uh, right. And and as you mentioned, you know, ambiguity, uncertainty. These are, I, I would argue, um, highly common features of organizational life, and um, probably, uh, you know, they are becoming a little bit more common with, um, you know, more quickly advancing technology. Um, with kind of some of these uh, other advancements that are that are making changes in our environment um, a little bit more frequent. So that kind of moves us to this um, second piece, which is, okay, so there's all this great stuff around high reliability and what a high reliability organization is. Um, now we need to think about, is there anything that a, a quote-unquote normal organization, if you're not a, a, a naval aircraft carrier, uh, <laughs> you know, which most, of, most organizations are not, um, is what can you learn from them? Right. So organizations kind of 
fall on a bit of this spectrum of those that are built for efficiency, you know, hierarchy and stability. And, and those forms of organization are fine when everything is stable in your environment. But it like never is, right? The whole part <laughs> of the agile movement, you know, if we look at software development back in the day or project management today, it's like massive upfront planning, um, which can be okay, I guess, if you're building like a dam or a bridge, but you're still stuff changes. How long is it going to take you to build this bridge, Ben? Um, I don't know until I send divers down to see what the ground looks like before we put the concrete piers in or something. Right. So there's these ideas of where things come. So one of the agile um, statements on this is responding to change over making a plan. Now, it's not mm-hmm. that we don't plan, but, you know, if you're a, if you're very fixed in your hierarchy, that that's fine. And your organization might be optimized if nothing changes. But but things are always changing. And so that's why, like in HR and a lot of this stuff, you know, we have shifting org charts and, you know, depending on the volatility of the environment that people find themselves in. Right. And, uh, you know, you mentioned planning. I think planning is a very interesting topic. And um, I think this is another kind of paradoxical thing where, as Dwight Eisenhower is sometimes quoted as saying, you know, uh, planning is priceless. Plans are useless. Uh, You know, this process of going through, um, thinking through contingencies and how we're going to do something, that can be really helpful. Um, But oftentimes, uh, you know, to kind of stay on the military uh, metaphors, right, Uh, you know, most plans don't survive first contact with the enemy. Um, yeah, once a bullet gets shot, every <laughs> yeah, or 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 as uh, you know the the scholar Mike Tyson once said, everybody's got a plan until he gets punched in the mouth. Right, I love it. I love <laughs> it. Right, so um, you know, to your point, normal organizations. If you're not a military organization, if you're um, just trying to be better at adapting to change, these hallmarks of high reli- reliability can be places where you can start thinking about how does my culture need to change? What are some of the social and kind of uh, interaction patterns that we need to have? You know, what kinds of, what does leadership look like in that type of environment? And how can we use that to become a more adaptive, more, dare I say, agile type of organization? Right. And so if you're an agile or in, and you don't know about the literature of high reliability organizations, you're missing out on a big, big part of the literature. This isn't just about a scrum team or burning down a backlog. Um, You got to be adaptable. Like your backlog will be better if the organizational uh, organization is adaptable. So this, this means this has culture and leadership implications. So you can do scrum or what people, some people call scrummer fall, right? You could do Scrum and everybody does all the stuff. But the real thing is, is the mindset and the principles and the stuff and the thinking, the culture, leadership, all of that soft stuff that derails these kind of features. And and so in order to be a high reliability organization, here's some cultural and leadership things you got to have. Like the first one's going to be psychological safety. If if you punish people for bringing up problems, um, they're not psychologically safe to help you know that, hey, we're about to derail here in our business strategy or execution of this project. Right. Yeah. The freedom to dissent um, to popular opinion is very important in a high reliability organization. Now, 
Does this make every team meeting super fast and easy? No, because you're going to have people who disagree and and they're not self-censoring because they feel safe in this environment. Um, And, you know, the idea of psychological safety is that I feel, you know, if I have a team in which this is uh, present, I, I feel like it's okay to kind of take these interpersonal risks and and say something that's unpopular. Um, and but this is so important to avoid, uh, you know, some of the kind of what you know gets stereotypically called groupthink, or you know, people all kind of uh, just kind of going along with with the you know the first solution that comes along. Um, it, it's absolutely critical for good sensing uh, functions within your team. Yeah, absolutely, which relates to communication, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, you may have created an environment where it's safe to dissent, but if that dissent can't get to the right places and the right times and the right ways that are understandable, then it kind of doesn't matter, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You have to have those chains of communication. You know, some people talk about open door policy. We're not even talking about that kind of stuff. Uh, Example is out on the range. So when we go, we teach our soldiers to shoot, uh, shoot rifles and we go out to the range to train on them. Well, that's that's a situation where bad things can happen if somebody's walking around down by the targets <laughs> and, you know, you say, OK, you know, fire when ready type thing. Um, one of the things is every person is a safety. And so we have mm-hmm. these paddles that have a red or white side on them. Anybody can throw that red paddle up. Right. And everything on the range will stop. Mm. Um, so that's an example of being able to communicate throughout the organization. So if, you, if you're in the plant and one of the machines starting to come apart, maybe somebody at that, at that machine operator level can press a button and bring the whole line to a stop. Those, and the best manufacturers have those kinds of things, but just think how would that apply to you if you're a marketing organization, if you're a sales organization, if you're able to have that kind of communication that can go all over the place from the smallest guy all the way up to the CEO. Right. And I think it's also about understanding that communication goes far beyond just kind of the transmission of information. You know, it's, it's, it, there, the idea here is that, you know, you're trying to build a shared understanding of what's going on. That's what sense making is about. And you do this through frequent interaction. And, you know, this requires people and leaders to be active listeners, to be, uh, you know, to, to not just assume that people understand things the exact same way that they understand things. Um, this involves things like, hey, you know, repeat back to me what you think I said so that we can make sure we're on the same page. Or does this make sense to you? Let's talk it through. Um, so what I'm hearing you say is, and repeating things back, just those little things can help to bridge the gaps that oftentimes happen in our interpersonal uh, communication patterns. Um, so, uh, definitely a, a key part of this, and, and this is, relates to the next point here, which is that you know, um, sense making and being a high reliability organization and catching small errors before they come before they become big ones. This is a team sport. Um, we don't do this too well just on our own, right? Um, that's a firing on all cylinders thing. So, mm-hmm. but you know, I hear executives do this stuff all the time. We're like, I can't trust these guys. They're not as smart as me. They don't have a degree on and on and on and on. Um, that's fine. But, you know, putting together the base of my Christmas tree, my daughter was like, Dad, I think that screw goes over here. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, uh, uh, you're right. Yeah. Right. 
So you're right. You may know better 90% of the time, but being high reliability means being right as close to 100% of the time as possible. So um, you can't be complacent there. You need to be listening, which brings us to another thing, being careful with power and authority. Mm. So if you barge in and shut people down when they try, even though it eats up time in your daggone day, you're like, oh, my God, here we go again. Yes, Phil, what is it? You know, <laughs> even though Phil may 100% have the worst ideas every time, if you're shutting Phil all down all the time, when Sarah has like the best idea, she might not bring it up because of how you treated Phil. Yeah. Right. That yeah. power and authority can set the tone and culture for people being able to come to you with the stuff, um, you know the stuff that you need to know right right yeah so you know this kind of goes to this whole idea of where does truth come from in your organization and in your, in your team um and yeah i mean as a leader you should be someone who knows things and you should develop your own competence and expertise uh but you know at the same time um it's uh it, it's very important to listen to the other people around you awesome um you know, I think another thing that we can do in, you know, ordinary organizations uh, with regards to, to high reliability is, you know, we can uh, we can measure this and we can try to make sure we're doing it well. Right. So and we actually do this in uh, our consulting practice. We have assessments that help measure this. Mm -hmm. um, some of the questions that we ask, not all of them, but that you guys might be able to use, but. How do you guys talk? How does this organization talk about failure? Mm -hmm. um, how do they bounce back um, from failure? I mean, that's ugh, that I always feel that one gets just it just gets missed all the time, you know, right? Oh, right. ignore that. Let's just pretend that was a one off. That was a one. <laughs> you know, I we sat in an organization where they briefed the board and the board would say, is this a one off or systemic? And, oh, that was a one off. <laughs> but but the board actually didn't have a way of following to see what the trends were on that. So yeah. well, and so what you just mentioned there, that's a perfect example of being too quick to simplify an explanation of something. Right? right. Saying this was a one off. Ah, just kind of an outlier, you know, this was because of X, Y, or Z. Well, was it? Right? Maybe we need to dig a little bit maybe, but let's let's dig a little bit deeper and see what's really going on. Um, because sometimes I think we just in many times in organizations, we lull ourselves into a false sense of security about knowing what's going on and knowing what's going to happen um, by having these simple explanations for things. Uh, another key part of this, and you know, one thing that we ask about when we uh, work with organizations is, you know, to what degree do members of the team have a shared understanding of other people's knowledge and skills? Um, and this is really important from a high reliability standpoint because th this allows me to know whom I can you know, to whom I can defer decision-making authority, for example, mm. or who might be able to uh, provide insight on a particular issue. And yeah, if you're going to defer to expertise, you kind of got to know who has expertise on stuff. Yeah. You can't <laughs> do it otherwise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. So excellent. So I think there's a, a lot that Every organization can learn from these high reliability organizations, uh, from these different principles of high reliability. Um, certainly would encourage our listeners to go check out uh, Managing the Unexpected, a great book. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that this can help any organization that is struggling with trying to deal with ambiguity and uncertainty in their environment, which is, of course, many organizations. Yeah. It, and if, if you don't feel like you're dealing with that, you're probably sinking, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might not be doing well. Um, that's right. So uh, I think now maybe we can just quickly talk about, you know, kind of related to these ideas of high reliability, some other kind of specific things, um, you know, lessons that we can learn from modern aircraft carriers uh, that, that could be helpful. And this actually, um, I, I wrote a blog post that details some of these things. And this came from a, a corporate event, actually, that I part- was was fortunate to participate in, um, where we took a, some people from a company um, to an aircraft carrier. Uh, so these were, you know, civilians who had little to no knowledge about what aircraft carriers do. And they went and did a tour of this aircraft carrier. Uh, and then, you know, we we had a kind of a conversation afterwards, a debrief about, hey, you know, what did we just experience? What are some things you learned and and so forth? And, you know, one thing that's that they do on aircraft carriers that's really cool is um, they are very explicit about who is supposed to be doing what, uh, especially on the flight deck. Um, you know, that's a very dangerous area on, on an aircraft carrier because you have a lot of moving parts, um, you know, big, big, dangerous things moving around quickly. And um, one thing that they do is they are they're very explicit about whose job is whose, and they actually wear different color shirts to uh, to indicate this, right? Um, and that, that can be very helpful. So, you know, I think you could think about this in terms of any team. Um, hey, do you have a good understanding of who is doing what on the team and who is not? Because otherwise you might be missing some opportunities for for uh, effectiveness. Right. And not only that, in organizations, one of the things that we diagnose all the time is role confusion. Yeah. You know, we'll come in and manage upper management thinks everything's fine. We're just not getting the speed we want. And then you go down and you find out, well, Tim doesn't know what Bob's doing. Sometimes Bob does that one. Tim's like, that's mine to do. Why is Bob doing that? Really, Bob should be doing it. You know, all those kinds of things. I mean, one of the one of the types of organization, what we call professional organizations, um, and everybody has a clear role and delineated responsibilities. That can be super helpful. And they immediately, so if a doctor comes into a new hospital, generally they know the gig. I know my role. The nurse knows their role. The admin knows their role. The insurance specialist knows their role. Mm-hmm. And there's maybe you only have to negotiate one or two items. As close as you can get to that, the more efficient you are. However, we're in this agile environment and we have HR models that allow us to change our tribes and community of practice and all those things. The key point here is not that everybody has a fixed role and it's not adaptable. It's that there is role clarity. Mm. So if something happens, you have to change your organization. Or if you have one of those really cool, flexible org charts where people reset how they are every day, week, month, whatever, um, day would be challenging, right? Because you kind of have to renegotiate role clarity so you can start flying in a high reliability way. That's right. That's right. And, you know, this is a key role for anyone in a management or leadership position is helping to clarify those expectations. And don't assume that everyone knows exactly what they're supposed to be doing, making sure that there's some clarity there. Um, and, and on a, you know, periodic basis, making sure that it, it stays fresh. 
Um, so that's role clarity. Another key piece that is, is very important. I think this is you. You may have some examples too from the army, but you know, having a shared language about how you're going to talk about things and how you're going to give and respond to directions and commands. Um, this can be very helpful within an organization and developing that kind of shared language. Um, and, and you know, this is like how do we talk about errors? How do we talk about things when they don't go well? Um, and this can be a very important part of you coming together as a team. Right. Whenever I come into an organization, uh, Ben, with you and, you know, with some of our other colleagues, I call it building, building the lexicon, right? Mm -hmm. uh, lexicon's kind of your own dictionary. So everybody comes from a different place, different part of another organization. And so as part of your onboarding, you can teach these key words and how you guys think about them. Um, lots of times these are only related to work, right? But I like to introduce a shared language around team functioning, mm -hmm. um, around psychosocial issues. Um, one of the ones I use in places where there's been a really toxic culture is this term emotional flooding. Mm -hmm. And the minute I say emotional flooding, everybody's like, oh, yeah, you know, when when Alex comes in and screams at, oh, I feel, you know, my blood pressure goes up. I feel yeah. tingly. My vision goes from really wide to really narrow. But everybody may be experiencing that, but they don't have a word for it. And mm -hmm. so it's not just technical aspects around the job because we're talking about curating human flourishing. We're talking about culture. All the stuff we talk about can't happen without management and culture and leadership. You got to have a shared language around team issues. And have a daggone lexicon, a dictionary that anybody can refer to. You could even make it part of your employee manual of words and their meanings. So when people have the same vocabulary, it's like when you've been in a relationship for a long time, you almost don't have to say stuff because your mm -hmm. conversations become expedited because you're on the same sheet of music. That's right. That's right. You know, and sometimes I think we sometimes we can assume that people all are on the same page about what something means. I come across this a lot when oh. when organizations are, uh, for example, maybe introducing new core values, right? And they say, "Oh, well, one of our values is very common one, integrity, right?" And but <laughs> but which is great. I mean, it's one of our core values. But the thing is, is that it, but it's like, hey, um, does everyone have a shared understanding of what that means? And I think that that's where it requires some some good conversations and some ongoing kind of uh, you know back and forth in order to achieve that that shared level of understanding, building that lexicon as you talk as you mentioned, uh, so everyone can be on the same page and uh, move forward in a a more um, efficient manner. Right. So that that kind of brings us to the next one: timely feedback. Uh, yeah, it's so, like, hey, Ben, you've been working here for a year. Here it's time for your annual review. I just want to tell you, for the past year, you've been horrible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't work so well. Um, <laughs> you know, on, on aircraft carriers, they, uh, they actually have somebody who is um, uh, an aviator, but not at that moment flying the plane. But this is someone who's working um, near the deck. They're called a landing signal officer in LSO. And they actually, you know, they, they, so they provide these ongoing course corrections as, you know, you imagine, I've never done this. I'm not a, an aviator, but uh, talking to people who have, you know, it, it is a really 
interesting experience, let's say, of uh, taking an aircraft, uh, taking a, a jet and trying to land it on a ship. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's a small piece of real estate right there in the ocean. And as you're coming in, and both things are moving, right? So the, the ship is moving, your aircraft obviously is moving. The LSO, the landing signal officer, is providing these ongoing course corrections as the pilot is coming in, giving them some, some critical information about where they are in relation to the deck and so forth so that they can mm. adjust. And I think this is a wonderful metaphor for what we need to be doing more as managers, as leaders, in terms of ongoing course corrections, little suggestions on an ongoing basis instead of waiting for that performance review session, you know, on an annual basis to tell people they've been screwing up all year. Yeah. You know, little spot corrections can go a long way. Hey, Tim, uh, let's do it this way. Uh, do you see kind of why? Okay. Let's talk about why. Got it. Awesome. Doing a good job. That's so much more empowering and, and impactful rather than waiting for those ongoing things. You can make those corrections more upfront and then somebody's set up for success rather than having to reflect. That being said, when you're, so let's say you're sensing in the marketing uh, function or something, when you are looking at things every day, every hour, you know, how many clicks did we get on that site? How, what's our, you know, sales funnel looking like? Little, 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 little bit. Um, you can miss those broader signals because everything looks so small. So another thing, so we're talking about timely. That doesn't mean, that means the feedback's at the right time. That doesn't mm -hmm. mean, you know, we're giving examples of close. So one of the techniques that I encourage organizations to do is, you know, you have the people looking at things bit by bit, day to day, hour to hour, whatever that cadence is. Also have maybe a different set of eyes that's not involved the say day to day Look at some of that data from period to period. So if they're looking at a daily, maybe those people look at that monthly. Lots of times you can catch stuff that you wouldn't see as far as trends out at that. Another example would be using a rolling average. Um, some of those type ideas when you're looking at, you know, how you're trending. Um, an example, another example is, you know, the fiscal year is an arbitrary point in time, <laughs> right? You know, there's nothing magical that your fiscal year ends October 7th or something like that. Yeah. Um, so when you're looking at those kinds of things, the key point here is timely feedback. Is our feedback at the right time, not just often? Right, right. And what this can help you do leading into this last point is it can help you build some situational awareness. So going back to the aircraft carrier, you know, this is a massive ship that, you know, when it's deployed has something like, you know, 5,000 people aboard. I mean, it really is an engineering and organizational marvel. Um, but, you know, so while they're landing and landing aircraft and having aircraft take off, they're also moving somewhere. They have to, somebody's got to be keeping in, in mind the kind of short and the long-term uh, mission. Uh, they've got to, you know, maintain a specific course and speed. They've got to know what's ahead of them, uh, trying to figure out where they're going to be in the next few days, uh, monitoring any threats and so forth. And I think that this this kind of highlights uh, this um, this conundrum and this paradox that we all have as managers, as leaders, which is, you know, you've got to get stuff done on a daily basis. And yet at the same time, you can't keep your head down too much. You also... This is kind of one of those both and things. You also must maintain awareness of um, what's going on long term. 
right? I, I think there is a tendency for many managers and even executives that I've been in contact with uh, to get in the habit of just going from one fire to the next, putting out fires, so to speak. And, you know, that's, that's just suboptimal, I'll say, in the long run. So the typical diagnosis is, oh, we're putting out fires every day. We need to get more disciplined process, see some leading indicators, and then you get everything under control, and then you're asleep at the wheel because you feel like you got everything under control. Um, you're not aware that things are slowly changing. You're not sensing or, you know, as we say, like mindfulness for the organization type behaviors. Um, so we've got data, analytics, all of those things. Um, are helpful, but they can also lull us into a false sense of security. And that's why it's important that we have the people portion of our organization fully engaged. That's right. That's right. So in today's episode, we've talked about how you can potentially run your company more like an aircraft carrier. And in, in particular, we've talked about this idea of the high reliability organization and what that means. Uh, we've talked about some implications that the ideas and things that we can learn from those, uh, those types of organizations can have for other types of organizations. And then we talked about some of these other uh, related ideas that can be helpful for organizations, looking specifically at some of the things that they actually do on, on naval aircraft carriers. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.